Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to think a little bit with you about signs. Signs. Signs sometimes give us warnings, and warnings can be helpful. You've seen some of these signs, right? There's the beware of the dog sign. So you come up to the house, you hear the dog barking, and maybe it's just a chihuahua, but you're a little afraid because of the sign, beware of the dog, right? Or maybe there's the do not enter sign or the no trespassing sign, right? There's that creepy house on the corner that has the no trespassing sign. You kind of know not to go near that house. Or, or one way, right? You never want to end up going the wrong way on a one-way street. Or my personal favorite is the wet paint sign, <clears throat> This is kind of a psychological mind bender, right? Don't, don't you want to go up and be like, is the paint really wet? Should, should I touch it? Is it dry now? Like, is the sign old? <laughs> signs can be helpful. Well, as we come to Psalm 13 this morning, the sign that I want to give you is watch your step. Watch your step. Because this morning, we're going to be stepping down into the muck and mire of life. We're going to be going down into the sewers, you could say, and it's going to be messy. There's going to be pain and heartbreak and brokenness and sorrow. And so as we step down into the sewers this morning, we're going to be looking for a reason to sing in the darkness. Let's look at Psalm 13 together, starting at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully over me. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning and we see sorrow and grief and pain and brokenness, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the length of our grief. And then in verses 3 and 4, we're going to look at the depth of our faith. And then in verses 5 and 6, we're going to look at the height of our joy. So the length of our grief, the depth of our faith, 
and the height of our joy. What do you do in the dark night of the soul when the pain is more than you can bear? Where do you turn? As we look at God's word this morning, I want you to hear in verses 1 and 2, I want you to listen for David's pain. I'm going to read the verses again. Listen for David's pain. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So David begins this morning by saying that his heart is full, right? And you've experienced fullness before. You can think here in terms of the overfull water balloon, right? Where just one more drop will cause that water balloon to burst. Or maybe you can think of fullness in terms of filling up your car with gas, right? And you put the gas in and eventually it clicks off, but you're a little bit greedy and so you, but it clicks off again. And maybe you try it a third time. Now you're convinced that your gas tank is full, right? Or maybe it's that Thanksgiving dinner where you've gone back for seconds and you're feeling kind of full, but you think you can go back for thirds. And then you've completely forgotten that there is dessert. And there are three kinds of pie and you don't want to insult anybody. And so you have to have all three kinds of pie. And so by the end of Thanksgiving dinner, you're sitting on your recliner. You've actually had to unbutton that button, right? <clears throat> and you're so full that you can't have another morsel of food stuffed in you. When we're talking about fullness this morning, David's heart is full of sorrow. And it, the fullness of his sorrow that fills his heart spills into his days. And his days are full of sorrow. His life is experiencing despair and heartache and pain and grief. And so he cries out in despair, How long, O Lord? But he doesn't just repeat it once. You can hear his desperation growing as he prays this not one time, not two times, not three times, but four times. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? It, his grief is unending, right? It's unceasing. It's not stopping. You see, sometimes the Lord allows his people to languish in affliction for years at a time. Have you been there? Are you there now? Did you notice what causes David's pain? It's at the end of verse 2. <clears throat> How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we don't know the specifics of David's trial. The specifics aren't mentioned here. And this has caused different commentators to make a bunch of different suggestions. Some commentators say, well, maybe this is that time when Saul is pursuing David, when Saul wants to kill David. Remember, as David is triumphant over uh, Goliath, right, uh, 
David comes back and there's praise given to David. Oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed what? His tens of thousands. And so Saul is jealous and he's taking spears and he's throwing them at Saul, trying to pin Saul to the wall. And then later, David is being hunted by Saul. Saul is pursuing him and David's hiding out in caves. Maybe the enemy that David's referring to is Saul. Or maybe it's Absalom. Last week, Elbert told us in Psalm 3 about Absalom, one of David's sons, right? And Absalom is so greedy for power, he wants the throne, and he's willing to do anything to get it, and so he's trying to take David's life. Or maybe some commentators have suggested that the enemy here is the enemy par excellence. It's death, death itself, right? What is David wrestling with? But you notice that it's generic. It's the enemy, right? There's not a specific given. Do you know why? Because God wants you to be able to pray this psalm. You see, we all have enemies, right? Maybe your enemy isn't, isn't Saul trying to kill you. Although maybe you have, you know, you're wrestling with the injustice of the state uh, oppressing you. Or, or maybe it's not Absalom, right? But maybe you have family turmoil that's unending, that's causing strife in your life. And, and maybe it's not death itself, right? But maybe you're struggling with some ongoing battle, some ongoing health issue. But regardless, we all have enemies, in this fallen world, we're constantly fighting against the world and the flesh and the devil. And in this broken world, there's always sin and there's always injustice and there's always, in, uh, there's always brokenness, right? And doesn't it feel like sometimes the enemy is winning? And isn't that one of the hard things in life? And it's not just that the enemy is winning, that he's prevailing over you, whatever your enemy is. But he's rejoicing in your demise, right? He's rejoicing in your demise. And that's when despair sets in. And you're heartbroken, and grief presses in from every side, and emptiness overwhelms you, and you're worn out from weeping, and you've got nothing left to give, and you have sorrow in your heart all the day, day after day after day. And if you've been there, you know that the hardest part, the deepest and darkest moment, is when it seems that God has forgotten us, when it seems that God has abandoned us, when it seems that we're alone. And that's David's cry in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now notice how David addresses God here. What's that title that he gives him? It's LORD in all caps, right? And whenever you see LORD in all caps, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh. And that name is given to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. And the name Yahweh is a scrunched up, condensed version of the promise that God will be with us. You see, the hardest part 
of the dark night of the soul is when the God who has promised to be with us, it seems as though he's abandoned us. What do you do when you feel forgotten? What do you do when you feel abandoned? What do you do in the darkness? The book of Psalms, every book, you should think in terms of every book of the Bible as having a different theme, a different message. Of course, they're all connected to the one big theme, right? But what, what does the book of Psalms uniquely contribute to the canon? The book of Psalms teaches us how to worship. It teaches us how to worship. It's your, your directory of worship and your book of common prayer and your hymnal all rolled together in one book. It's the way that we should worship God. And as God teaches us how to worship, there are lots of different types of psalms. There are royal psalms about the, the coming king. There are Zion psalms about the promised land. There are hymns of thanksgiving. There are psalms of confidence. There are hymns. But do you know what the most frequent type of psalm in the Psalter is? It's lament. Over 60 of the 150 psalms in the Psalter are lament. Do you see how well the Lord anticipates our brokenness? Do you see how well he knows our pain? Psalm after psalm after psalm give us words to take our brokenness to him. Psalm after psalm after psalm teaches us to cry out in desperation and anguish and agony and pain, right? God knows our pain, and so he gives us the words to use. Because if you've been in the darkness you know that sometimes it can be hard to pray. Sometimes the words are hard to come by. Words just won't come. And so God says, here, use mine. And so you can cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And do you know what that says about who God is? God wants all of you all the time. Not just when you can make yourself all nice and shiny, right? Not when you've had a really good week because you worked at Mission to Broadmoor or you've been reading your Bible every day or you're feeling really connected in prayer. God also wants you when you're broken and when you can't stop crying and when you can't get it together and you can't find the words. And so God gives you the words and he ushers you into his presence. And he invites you to take all of your hurt before him. Now, as an aside, <clears throat> I think we need to be careful about when we pray, how long, O Lord, right? I don't think we should be praying, how long, O Lord, when, you know, they're out of organic milk at the grocery store. <laughs> or, right, you're waiting for that parking spot and that other car slips in ahead of you. Or you probably shouldn't even be praying, how long, O oh Lord, when the church has been flooded and it's been flooded from the library all the way down to the fellowship hall and so you need to have joint adult Sunday school in the sanctuary. <laughs> but when your heart is full of sorrow all the day and when your enemy is rejoicing over you and when it feels like God has abandoned you, he gives you the words 
and he ushers you into his presence and he invites you to take all of his hurt, all of your hurt before the throne. Now it's interesting, right? Uh, this psalm, at some point David sat down or stood up, maybe he had a standing desk, right? And he wrote, he wrote the psalm out, right? And when he wrote the psalm out, that was a personal and private prayer that was man's word to God. But at some point, someone took that psalm and put it in the book, right? The book of Psalms. And at that point, it was no longer personal and private and man's word to God. Now it was covenantal and communal and became God's word to man. Now I want you to think for a minute about what that means. That means that, yes, absolutely, we can pray this psalm in, in our own you know, prayer closet, in, in the car as we're kneeling by our bed. We, we can pray it on our own. But it's also an invitation for us to take our hurt and our heartbreak into the covenant community and together to pray our hurt before the throne. You see, that's part of the beauty of the body of Christ. We're not supposed to be going through heartbreak in isolation. We're not supposed to be experiencing weeping by ourselves. We're not supposed to be alone. And so God calls us together as the covenant of covenant community and says, look, you, you can pray this at Sunday morning worship. You can pray this in growth group, right? You, you can pray this with a friend in your home over your favorite beverage, right? You can pray this in community. That's the length of our grief. But then secondly, I want you to see in verses three and four, the depth of our faith, the depth of our faith. Now, at this point, some of you may be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, we've been complaining for a while here, right? And you didn't grow up in a complaining home. In fact, you, you were, you know, in Southern hospitality, you were taught politely, right, that if you can't say anything at all, what? No, sorry. If you can't say anything nice, there it is, don't say anything at all, right? And yet we've been complaining about God. Should we really be talking to God this way? And then you remember your Old Testament. You've read Exodus and Numbers, and by the way, Numbers isn't a really helpful title. The Hebrew title is a little bit better there. It's in the wilderness. And you're watching Israel in the wilderness. There are a bunch of numbers and numbers. See Numbers 1 and Numbers 26, the census and all that. But they're in the wilderness, okay? And you remember in the wilderness... Right? What, what do the Israelites do again and again? They grumble and complain. And they complain and grumble. And it becomes a recurring theme. Right? It's what identifies, it what's, it's what defines the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. And when, do you remember how God responds? In Numbers chapter 14, God responds with a how long of his own. Now, now, just get, get the full picture here, right? Israel has been enslaved in Egypt 
right, for 400 years. And God has set them free. He's delivered them. And then Pharaoh, with the the greatest army on the face of the earth, pursues Israel up to the edge of the Red Sea. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea. And Israel walks through on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his army chase after him. And the Red Sea closes and God destroys the greatest army in the history well, they're not in the history of the world, because anyway. But the greatest army at that time, right? And now the first generation Israelites are standing on the edge of the plains of Moab. And they're looking into the promised land. And they see the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are so big that they go, man, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Right? There is no, literally it says that in the Bible, they're like grasshoppers in their sight. There is no way that we can beat the Canaanites, right? It's better, they say, that we would have stayed as slaves in Egypt. It's better that we would have been killed off in the wilderness wanderings. They're grumbling and complaining. And in Numbers 14, uh, verse 11, God says this, And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And then notice grumbling and complaining gets equated with unbelief. And how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And then down in verse 27, he says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? And if you keep reading, you learn that the reason the first generation Israelites don't enter the promised land, that they die in the wilderness, that Israel wanders for 40 years so that generation can die off, is because Israel is grumbling and complaining. So how is Psalm 13 different? Psalm 13 is a complaint, right? How is Psalm 13 different? Well, the Israelites are grumbling and complaining against God. But the psalmist is complaining to God. And the change in prepositions makes all the difference. You see, Israel is complaining about God to each other. But the psalmist takes his complaints about God to God before the throne. Right? Now... If you have a complaint against your wife, not that any of you would ever have complaints against your wife, but if you had a complaint against your wife, is it wise to go down and take it to the barber shop? Is it wise to go air it out with your bowling buddies? You, you can answer it. No, right? No, you, you, you don't want to do I mean, if you did, how did that go for you, right? Like, that, that's not, not a wise thing. You see, we're, biblically, we're supposed to take our complaints against someone to them. And that seems to go double for those with whom we're in an intimate covenant relationship, right? So if you have a complaint against your wife, you're supposed to take that complaint to your wife. And if you have a complaint against God, you're supposed to take that complaint to God. And that's exactly what the psalmist does here. Now, in a lament, a lament, as it's built in the Psalter, has a particular anatomy. A lament has five parts to it. There's the address to God, 
the, uh, sorry, the address to God, the complaint, the plea to God for help, and then a declaration of trust and a declaration of praise. So in verses 1 and 2, we've seen the address to God and the complaint. And now as we get into verses 3 and 4, we're going to see the plea to God for help. So read with me verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Now, remember, David in verses 1 and 2 is feeling like God has abandoned him. He's full of sorrow. And now he's saying that his enemy is prevailing over him and he's turning to God for help. But I want you to notice this. When you feel abandoned by someone, is your natural inclination to go to them? But that's exactly what David does here. And did you see how David addresses God in this? He says, oh, Yahweh, my God. That is, oh, the God who has promised to be with us. And then notice the, it's not pronominal suffix. Notice the pronoun here, right? It's my God. Even though he feels completely abandoned, he still claims that Yahweh is his God. And that's faith. That's the desperation of clinging to the only one who has answers in the darkness. David, just by saying, oh, Yahweh, my God, is expressing his faith. And as he turns to Yahweh in faith, he offers this plea for help with three petitions and three reasons. Three petitions and three reasons. Now, the three petitions are consider and answer me, and then light up my eyes, okay? Now, we all kind of know what answer me is, right? When you pick up the phone and call somebody, you want them to answer you, right? He's wanting God to answer him in this. But I want to take a look at consider and light up my eyes briefly. So consider. Consider might better be translated look or turn your face towards me. Look at me. Uh, here. <clears throat> Do you remember what David was struggling with back in verses 1 and 2? What, what grieved David the most, right? He feels that in the midst of his turmoil that God has hidden his face from David. Well, what's the opposite of God hiding his face? Well, God showing his face, right? Turning his face toward you. Did you know that that's exactly what is promised in the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. So when God through Moses is telling the priesthood, this is what I want you to bless the people with, right? God says, I want you to bless the people this way. It's the ironic blessing, number 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord what? Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, as God's people, we have the promise that God's face will shine upon us. But that's not what David is experiencing. 
What does David feel? D David feels forgotten. David feels abandoned, right? David feels like he's unseen. And that only heightens his longing to be seen. Are you aware of that longing in your own heart? I, I think we all have this. That longing to be seen, that longing to be recognized, that, that longing to be noticed, generally for something good, right? I think that we have that longing deep in our hearts because you, as you were created in the image of God, were built to hold the gaze of God, right? And so here, just in one word, look, right? David is praying God's promises back to him. It's like a little child grabbing his father's face and saying, Daddy, look, look at me. And in that moment, David is clinging to the promise of God that God's face will be shining on him, that this is the blessing that he has, right? And he's clinging to that promise, even though it's at odds with his experience. And then light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Well, what does it mean to light up my eyes? Well, in the, in the Old Testament, eyes are a measure of life and vitality, they are, you could say, the window of faith. But darkness for David is now creeping in. And the sleep of death looms. And David can feel his eyes beginning to shut, right? And so he's praying that in the darkness, his eyes would be lit up so that he could see God in the darkness, right? So that the darkness wouldn't overwhelm him. So three petitions, consider, answer me, and light up my eyes. Now those three petitions are followed by three reasons for God to act, and they all begin with lest. Look at the end of verse 3. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, and then lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You see what David's doing here? He's listing reasons for God to act. Why is he listing reasons? Well, David is assuming something about the character of God. David is assuming that his misery arouses God's mercy. David is assuming that Yahweh is concerned with the trouble of his people. And so he begs God to consider his misery. Do you see how David is teaching us to pray? He's saying, even when it feels like God has completely abandoned you, he is still your God. And so pray that he would shine his face on you. The light of his face would be cast on you. And ask for light so that you can see God in the darkness. And then enumerate your miseries before him that you might arouse his compassion. That's the depth of our faith. So the length of our grief, the depth of our faith, and now in verses 5 and 6, we see the height of our joy. Verse 5 is the declaration of trust section of this lament, and verse 6 is the declaration of praise. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart 
shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully over me. Something's happened here, right? So, so when we sang uh, the Psalter arrangement of Psalm 13 to a sacred head now wounded, it was set in a really minor key. But there's a transition here. All of a sudden, the music has shifted into a major key. That minor tension has resolved, right? And, and, and did you notice how it began? It begins, it begins with this contrasting conjunction, but. You see, in verse 1, the psalmist was crying out in anguish that God had forgotten him and was hiding his face from him. But now in verse 5, the psalmist is trusting in God's steadfast love, his chesed, right? His never stopping, never giving up, unfailing always and forever, unbreaking always and forever love. In verse 2, the psalmist's heart is full of sorrow day after day. But in verse 5, his heart now rejoices in God's salvation, in verse 2, the psalmist was wondering how long his enemy would be exalting over him. But now in verse 6, the psalmist is singing because the Lord has dealt bountifully over him. This psalm starts with weeping but ends with singing. This psalm starts with grief and abandonment but ends with celebration and rejoicing. Desperation has become devotion and mourning has turned into dancing. A heart breaking has become a heart singing. What happened? God met him in the darkness. Somewhere between verse 4 and verse 5, God showed up. And he took David in his arms and he drew him close. And that changes everything. And maybe if you've been in the darkness, you've seen this, right? Maybe there are days or weeks or months or years of anguish and heartbreak and pain. And then in a moment, God breaks in and he takes you in his arms and he whispers to your heart, you're mine. I've got you. Nothing can ever separate you from the depths of my love. And in that moment, as God meets you in the darkness, you experience him like you've never experienced him before. You know his love in a truer, deeper, more penetrating way than you've ever seen before. You see, it's called the valley of vision for a reason. When the world has taken everything from you, when you've been crushed down, when, when, you, when you've been stripped bare and you've got nothing left, you realize that all you have is God. And then you realize that God is enough. He's all you need, right? Now the circumstances still rage on. You're still in the darkness. But God has met with you and that changes everything. Now, as an aside, <clears throat> I don't think that David sat down and wrote this psalm all in one sitting. I think he wrote it over time. And that's certainly how we should experience this psalm, 
right? Because there are seasons in the Christian life where all you can pray is verses 1 through 4. And if that's where you are, pray verses 1 through 4. Take those words that God gives you and pray those words over and over and over again. Because eventually, eventually God will show up. Eventually God will break in and God will meet you in the darkness. How do I know? How can I be sure that God will always meet us in the darkness? Psalm 22 is another lament. It's just a couple pages over there in your Bible. It's another lament that expresses the same heartbreak and anguish and pain. And do you remember how it begins? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Garden of Gethsemane, there's another petitioner. Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is full of sorrow, even to the point of death. And Jesus doesn't want to be left alone. You see, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is facing what he knows to be the cup of God's wrath, the eternal judgment for sin. And so he's pleading with the Father, and he comes before the Father three times, and he says, Father, if there's another way, don't make me go to the cross. My Father, if, there be, if it be possible, take this cup, that is the cup of God's wrath, from me. Do you know that... Every time in the New Testament that Jesus refers to God the Father, he calls him my Father. Except once. On the cross, as Jesus is hanging there, derelict in agony, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now I know he's praying Psalm 22. He's probably praying through the whole thing. But he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my father. Why? Because in that moment, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, as Jesus becomes sin for us and the unmitigated wrath of God is poured out on him for the eternal judgment of sin, in that moment, God the Father turns his face away from God the Son. You see... What, what the psalmist only felt, Jesus actually experienced. Right? The psalmist's perception was Jesus' reality. <clears throat> In the deepest possible way, the Father turns his face away. In the deepest possible way, the Father abandons the Son. There's no communion, only judgment, right? Do you see it? God the Father abandoned God the Son. So ultimately and completely, so that he would never have to abandon you. Abandonment in the Christian life will never be your ultimate reality. God will always show up. So when you experience the pain and brokenness and heartache 
right? That will never be the final word. That will never be the ultimate reality. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is always a father's smile that awaits. One day, the shadows will flee and the dawn will finally come. And in that moment, your wildest dreams will be fulfilled and you'll see the unspeakable beauty of the new heavens and new earth and it'll leave you utterly speechless. And then you'll see it. Then then you'll see the Father's smile that you've longed for all of your life. And in that moment, as Tolkien says, everything sad will come untrue. And then, to quote Lewis, your greatest journey, right? The greatest adventure will begin. Brothers and sisters, the pain that you're experiencing now can't compare to the joy that is coming. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And isn't that a reason to sing in the darkness? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that in the darkness, in our grief, in our pain, in our anguish, and our sorrow, that we can come before you, that you give us the words to come into your presence. And thank you that we know that though we may feel abandoned, that our forsakenness is never the final word, but that because you abandoned your Son, we have joy unspeakable that awaits us. Father, would you give us the endurance we need in our grief to come to you. And I ask it in the name of the one who was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. Amen.